Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog Podcast time. Brian Olson here with my good friend and partner, John Lester. John, how are you on this fine Friday afternoon? Excellent, Brian. What's going on? What's new? What's exciting? What tell you what's exciting? We got a phenomenal guest. I think yeah, we do. We do. And our special guest today is none other than Art Bell. Now, for our audience, Art is a writer and former media executive known for creating, building, and managing successful cable television channels. And his memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, was published in September of 2020. Now, while working at HBO, he pitched the idea of a 24-hour comedy network, which he helped develop and launch. Now, Art went on to hold senior executive positions in both programming and marketing at Comedy Central. During that time, he also co-authored a humor book entitled Websitings, a collection of websites we'd like to see. After leaving Comedy Central, Art became president of Court TV, where he was a guiding force behind one of the most successful brand evolutions in cable television. Now, in addition to writing, he plays piano and jazz drums. Art currently resides in Greenwich, Connecticut, in Deer Valley, Utah, with his wife. Art, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. You know, before we get started, John and I really want to know, is jazz really considered music? I know some people have debated that. Oh, man, that is so cold. That is so cold. <laughs> I'm is, sorry, I had to ask. You're starting, you're starting with an ice cold question like that. Yeah, I love jazz. I love classical oh, yeah. music, too. And I actually, I love all kinds of music. I'm not a big opera fan, but jazz, classical, and, uh, you know, pop, R&B, all of it's great. But I know you're known for your comedy. How did you actually break into cable television? How did you get your start? Well, I, actually, I went to work out of business school, and I wanted to work in the television business, and I went to CBS. And in those days, working at CBS, it was a giant corporation. It was, it was kind of like the post office of television. Layers and layers of management. Nothing got done. It was just so exasperating for me to work there. And after about a year, a friend of mine who had been at CBS called me up, and he said, hey, you got to come over here to HBO. It's wild. It's just crazy. I mean, and it was. They were looking for somebody to do subscriber projections. And I had previously worked as an economist in Washington, D.C., doing econometric forecasting. So my friend said, you're probably the only guy in the whole television business who knows how to do that kind of stuff. I got the job. And uh, he was right. HBO was just a great place to work. They, they, would be, they walked down the hall saying, we are going to change television. At that time, HBO was really the Netflix of television. How were, early were you in there, Art? Sorry? Put it, put it in perspective for the audience. How early were you in HBO? I was in there in the mid-80s. So, and, and so uh, what were you, you were in there the first five years, right? HBO actually went on the satellite in 1976. So, so I you're count, in 10 years. I yeah. count that as, a, as the start date. Yeah. So that is pretty amazing. Such an, such an icon that, that you were there that early. Yeah. The funny thing is, people said, oh, man, you should have been here two years ago. It was a riot. <laughs> <laughs> now it's uh, stayed and not, not much fun. It was a great place to be, great place to learn the television industry. Yeah, for sure. Who was running it at that point? Well, it was owned by Time. It wasn't oh, Time Warner yet, but it was, no, it was Time, Time Inc., yeah. and then it became Time Warner. And the people in charge were Frank Biondi, who eventually ran Viacom. Right. And okay. uh, Michael Fuchs, who ran HBO for a good long time. And he was there. He was, the, he was really important to me uh, w when I was putting together the comedy channel. That's wonderful. What were you actually doing at HBO when you first had that idea 
that eventually morphed into Comedy Central? Well, to tell you the truth, I was doing subscriber forecasting, which after leaving economics was about the last thing I wanted to do in the television business. I mean, I went into the television business to really get closer to programming. When I came out of business school, I looked around and said, why, why isn't there an all comedy channel? I loved comedy. I loved comedy from the time I was a kid. And that's what I wanted to do is work in comedy. There was an all music channel. There was an all, you know, all sports channel, ESPN. Right. So where was that all comedy channel? And so I really had that. I really had the idea that there should be one around the end of business school when I started looking for a job in the television business. That's amazing. It was an accident too, right? Somebody overheard this idea and kind of ran with it, right? <laughs> well, it wasn't an accident on my part. I had written the whole thing up. I did financial plans. I did an operating plan, programming. I had really worked on it by then. And I, I did try and pitch it to HBO, to the head of programming. And that meeting didn't go so well. I, I, I walked in and I sat down and I said to her, listen, um, I really think HBO ought to do an all comedy network. And she said, hold on a second, Art. That is the worst idea I've ever heard. And let me tell you why. She said, no com comedians are going to want to be on it. There's too much comedy on television already. And, you know, she just kind of went on and on. And then I left. <laughs> I said, thanks. Thanks for having the meeting. And uh, But, you know, I walked out. And, and despite the fact that she threw a truck full of ice cold water on me, I, I knew she was wrong. You know, I just, in my heart, I knew she was wrong. So I went, that's when I went back to my office. And thought about actually leaving HBO and either doing it myself or applying to Viacom or some other entertainment company where maybe they'd do it. That's how strongly I felt about the whole thing. And while I was working on that, that's when I got caught. It, it wasn't immediately after that meeting, obviously, it was a couple of weeks later, but I got caught by my boss's boss working on it. And he said, wow. what are you working on? And I showed him. And he said, wow, I think Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, ought to see this. And I said, great. And he said, right now. And I said, what are you kidding me? Right now? I don't have a presentation or anything. He says, come on, we'll just go talk to Michael. And so right then I went down to Michael's office. Now, you got to remember, for, for me, Michael Fuchs was kind of a god in the television business. Actually, two weeks earlier, he had been featured on the cover of the New York Times Magazine as the most powerful man in Hollywood. That was, that was what it was titled. So this guy, you know, if I got into the elevator with Michael Fuchs accidentally, I would break into a cold sweat. That's what, I, that's what this guy was to me. So we waltz into his office and I pitched my heart out for 15 minutes. You know, I had to muster all the, all the passion I could and, and really sell him on the vision. You know, this is what it's going to look like in 10 years when we're successful. And he said, okay, it sounds kind of interesting. Why don't we take a shot at it? You know, do a, do a demo tape, do some research, get some more information, make a presentation to top executives in a month or two, and, uh, and we'll see what, uh, whether we, we launch. And that's how it started. So, Art, how long was it after that that you could actually take a breath and say, yes, I was right, it made sense? I knew the channel was going to be successful before we launched. I don't think I took a breath though for two years <laughs> because I really felt the weight of the entire project, the entire undertaking was on my shoulders. As a matter of fact, I was teamed up with a guy named Stu Smiley, who at that time was the head of HBO comedy. And 
HBO comedy was pretty hot in those days. They were doing those one hour comedy specials with Robin Williams and, and Billy Crystal and, you know, all the rest of them, Carlin. And they were doing comedy specials that you could, you know, couldn't see, you couldn't see that uncut comedy anywhere else except in a club. So HBO was kind of known for comedy, but the point is I was, I was teamed up with Stu Smiley. And the first thing he said to me was, what do you know about comedy? And the answer was not much. I mean, I was a fan. And the other thing he said was, he always said, hey, there's the, there's the guy with the big idea. Because, you know, I had thrown this entire company, really, HBO, a lot of people at HBO were involved into this project that nobody had ever heard of before I pitched it to Michael. And suddenly we're all trying to make a comedy channel. So I felt, I really felt that if it, if it didn't succeed, it would be on my head. I think the reason I asked you the question is I think you're pointing to a couple of really important life lessons and business lessons here. And one is to do your homework, but to trust your gut. And the other is to stick with it until you're able to take that breath. Cause that's kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. You know what? Perseverance is one of the things I really, I think really comes through in my accounting in the book, you know, in my memoir, because so many things went wrong. I mean, you have no idea. You know, the reason I called it constant comedy is obviously because it was comedy 24 hours a day for the rest of my life. That's how I looked at it. And the subtitle, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, was really to indicate how difficult it was. I mean, I think people watching Comedy Central, and by the way, it's the 30th anniversary of Comedy Central in April, which is kind of amazing to me. But anyway, people watching Comedy Central today who don't know how it started may think that it was shot out of a cannon, fully realized and totally successful and, you know, instantly making a name for itself. Man, that is so far from the truth. That first year, the entire first year, I thought they were going to shut it down and any minute. I went to work every day expecting a phone call. The first month we were savaged by the press. They just said HBO, you know, is falling flat on their face with this new comedy network, which isn't even funny. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we were getting. I think, I think it was Variety that called us the gong channel, which wasn't very nice, but you know, I, it, it was really, it was really not going well for a long time, but I had to go to work every day. And my only thought was, how am I going to make it better? What am I going to do more of that's working? And what am I going to do less of that's not working? So who, then, was, who was your godfather that, that made sure that, that it wasn't shut down? Because a lot of cases, that is what happens. If, if something doesn't take off right away, somebody says, look, look at the numbers, let's shut it down. So somebody had to, inter somebody had to intercede on your behalf and say, no, we're going we're gonna to let this thing go for a while. It wasn't so much interceding. Uh, I have to emphasize that Michael Fuchs was the powerhouse at HBO. He really felt he was managing Comedy Channel. Mm -hmm. It was his baby. I mean, he put himself on the line. He said, we are going to do a comedy channel. It's going to be the funniest thing you've ever seen. It's going to be the best cable channel you ever okay. seen, you ever saw. And he was very disappointed that it didn't work at the beginning or sort of in the middle of the first year. He's the one who called us in and said, look, Art, it took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor. And that's where that came from. He was very unhappy, but it was his name on the line and he did not want to shut it down. That would be retreating oh, okay. on his part. Right. Um, but he sure made it very clear to me and, you know, my coworkers, my co-executives there that uh, we better get it together. As far as the selection process for the early days, 
how were the shows conceived and what show really turned the corner for you? What was that moment where, you know, okay, we're now making it here. Well, interestingly enough, the show that we considered our first kind of cult hit was Mystery Science Theater 3000. We were sitting around before the channel launched with the head of uh, the head writer at comedy, a guy named Eddie Gordetsky. And Eddie said, he said, you know, what we really need, he kind of talked like that. He said, you know, what we really need, we need a show where comedians are watching television or watching movies and making stupid comments and funny comments. And we all thought, yeah, that's a good idea. So we started working on the show. And then uh, like a week later in the mail, uh, we got a cassette and there was an, a note in the cassette and said, hey, we heard you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something that would interest you? And it was Mystery Science Theater 3000. These guys in Minneapolis, Joel Hodgson and those guys were, were doing it at a local TV station all by themselves and didn't really think anybody would ever care. And we made it a big deal for us and for them. And that's when I knew that the channel was going to be successful because I knew that like CBS or NBC would never put a, a show like that on, you know, where, where you got a guy and two puppets talking to the, to the screen and making jokes. And I knew HBO wouldn't even put that on, but now we had a comedy channel and we could put it on. We were doing innovative comedy and that that's, that's when I knew it was going to be successful. And to your credit, I mean, in that meeting, when you were meeting with that executive who turned it down, these shows were innovative. This was not network television. This was a completely different approach to comedy. And that Mystery Science Theater 3000, I remember watching that as a child thinking, man, this is so hokey, but it works. And it influenced, I think, Beavis and Butthead, right? Which was a huge, huge hit for MTV at the time. I mean, it was a complete ripoff of Mystery Science Theater 3000. So amazing. What were some of the shows that you were involved in and some of your favorite shows from the early days? Well, we did a show called Short Attention Span Theater. And that was hosted by John Stewart. He was very young and unknown, and he was great. And he would throw two comedy clips, either movies or short form comedy, or you know, clips from movies, clips from television comedies, clips from stand up. And that was a great show for us. And it it got a lot of attention. And he got a lot of attention. I <laughs> I knew early on he was going to be one of the bigs because he was so funny, but he was also very smart. And you could tell he was very smart. And we, uh, you know, we went on with Jon Stewart. As you know, he ultimately did The Daily Show. But right. we, started our, we started our political coverage in 1992. That's when, we, that's when we first started doing political coverage, news coverage. And Jon Stewart was part of that. I heard you had a run-in with him. That was part of your book, right? Well, I had, I had, <laughs> it wasn't really a run-in. It was kind of an intersection. Um, what happened was he was co-hosting a show with another comedian, Patty Rossborough, and she uh, she was good. I th I liked her actually. I thought she was great, and I thought they were really good together. But John Stewart was so funny that mostly she was just sitting there and laughing at him the whole time. So that the talent people thought that that she she should go uh, and John should do the show himself. So that's what happened. They got rid of Patty. They they fired her, and unfortunately, nobody told John. Hmm. And he went nuclear. He was so incensed. He's, he, you know, and for some reason it felt to me, you know, all right, you got to go down and talk to John Stewart. He's like, he's crazed. He, he's, he's threatening to quit because we fired Patty without telling him and can't do that. And she was great. And what's going on. And, 
And so I went down and yeah, he said, I'm going to quit. He said, you can't just do that to a person. You can't just fire them. <laughs> I'm sitting there in a corporation where everybody just gets fired, you know, but he said, no, you can't just do that. And you certainly can't do it without my approval because she was my partner. We were working together. And now, you know, I really saw at that moment what ultimately became not only his empathy, but his, his concern for, you know, his fellow workers, his fellow human beings, his fellow Americans, you know, he really cared about Patty. He was going to quit. Luckily, I talked him out of it. I, yeah, yeah, I talked him out of it. No, but did, did, did they get Patty back? No, Patty did not make it back. Oh, jeez. She's okay. She's okay. No, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's always fascinating for somebody who doesn't really understand how corporations operate and they get that cold awakening. And it's like, well, I'm going to put my foot down and the corporation's like, well, I don't care. Yeah, it's true. Actually, a lot of people who read my book said that what struck them was that so many people get fired. And I said, yeah, yeah welcome to work in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially in, you know, in the entertainment business where you're only as good as your last success, sort of. You right. know, they, fire, they fire programmers all the time when they don't get the ratings or turn the place around or whatever. So yeah. that's the way it was. Yeah, um, yeah. You look is. back in the day. Look in the '80s. Like Cheers, it took them what three seasons to be successful. I mean, today, you know, two episodes and you're gone. So, much different time we're living in. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, there was more room to breathe in those days, especially when there were, you know, in the early days when there were three networks basically, and then Fox shows up. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of competition, so you had a little room, more room to maneuver. I mean, the network that came in third. Like if ABC came in third in one any given year in the ratings, they made a little bit less than the guy who came in second and a little bit less than the guy who came in first. I mean, that's the way the television business was. Suddenly, you know, now there's lots and lots of television stations and channels and streaming and everything else. So the networks, the big three, they don't have that kind of clout anymore and they don't command those kind of audiences anymore. So, and like the rest of America, I will say this, the rest of American uh, business they have a very short horizon. You know, they're reporting earn, earnings on a quarterly basis. They want to make sure that the ratings, which come out every every week, are as good as they can be. So they're getting the most out of out of their programming. And you know, that's the way it is. So, Art, what was what was the biggest surprise that you got after starting Comedy Channel? What you sat back and said, wow, I never thought this, or I thought this should have happened or would have happened. What, what was the biggest one of those things that happened to you? I got fired. Now there's a big one. That's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big one and a surprise. Yes. You guys got that right. Um, what happened was I was there for about eight years and, and it was head of programming and marketing and we put the place together. And by then I wasn't going to work afraid that they were going to shut it down every day because right. um, they weren't because we'd had a lot of successes and I can talk about them. Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect was on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd done, as I said, some of the programming that got us noticed, like um, some of the political and news programming that got us noticed. But what happened is they fired my boss. I was working for a guy who was president and he didn't, uh, he wasn't, he just wasn't pulling it off the way the board wanted him to. So they fired him and they brought in a new president and the new president fired everybody, essentially. I mean, you know, exaggerating a little bit, but I was talking to our talent 
and development person yesterday from back in the day. She's now a huge producer in, in Hollywood. She's, she's done a lot of amazing shows, very successful. And uh, I was talking to her and she said, she said, you know, I got fired. Art. I said, yeah, we have that in common. I think we got fired the same day. She was out on the West coast. She goes, yeah. And she said, and I told the guy who fired me that he was never, he was going to regret this for the rest of his life. <laughs> and I laughed. I said, I didn't say anything like that, but uh, I just thought it was great the way she said that. Yeah, that was a surprise. That was a surprise. Wow. So basically the new guy came in and just brought in his own regime, huh? Your collateral yeah. damage. And you know what I said to myself? I said, what do you have to do to keep a job in this business? Hey, how about you start the channel? How about you give your entire life to it for eight years, you know, and and put all of your all of yourself into it? my entire heart and soul uh, for eight years and then have somebody come and said, and you know what he said to me and it's in the book. He said, you know, Art, your fingerprints are all over this place. I just can't have you around here. Right. Why? Because my fingerprints were all over the place. Right. See, you know, in, in television, especially, but I think this is probably true in management. I, I, as I said, I worked as an economist. I worked for a lot of companies, television and not television. New management feels an obligation to prove themselves, you know, to do things better. They don't want to come in and just continue what has been done and continue it the way it's been done. And that's especially true of the television business because new programmers are brought in to change things, you know? Hey, make us a hit. That was always a big thing. Hey, get us a hit. Will you get us a hit? I always used to say, yeah, I'll go down to the hit department and hustle them <laughs> right up. <laughs> Because, you know, making a hit involved so many things, including marketing, scheduling, who the talent was, writing, and also giving it time to breathe, as you point out. You don't make a hit on the second day, usually. It takes a, it takes a little time to, to, let things, to let things gel so that, so that you have the possibility of making a show a hit. I, well, that was the case with Politically Incorrect. The first six months, Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect was not a great show. I mean, let me tell you, it was terrible. But we had six months. We said, we're going to make this work if it kills us. And he did. It's amazing. Well, you left a, behind a heck of a legacy. Let me tell you that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm proud of it. No, as you should be. And, and the question, you know, John and I, we love the classics, right? I mean, we're, we're not millennials here. So we definitely respect the classics. And I don't think kids, they really understand what good comedy is. And, you know, we're living in, you know, wokeness and cancel culture. You know, what do you think? What, where's comedy going to be headed to? Back in the day, in, in, in your time, in, in Comedy Central and HBO, they were able to say the most outrageous things and people didn't take it personally. They thought it was funny. Today, it's completely different. Where do you see comedy going in the age of political correctness? Well, I hope this particular moment fades away a little bit because, you know, comedy... I don't think comedy is going to change. I think comedians are scared. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of comedians about this, as you can imagine, recently. And they said, man, I, I, you know, we don't know how we're going to operate in this environment. And I said, look, Lenny Bruce got arrested on stage, you know, hundreds of times for his act. Because people thought what he was saying. You couldn't say that. You can't say that kind of stuff. You can't talk about that kind of stuff. But the whole idea of comedians getting on stage and talking about the world as they see it gives us an opportunity to see it, you know, see the world through a different lens and also through a lens as it's being accompanied by humor. I think that comedians and, you know, the insight that they bring sometimes, you know, can have a big impact. 
for example, I mean, women comedians, I wouldn't believe me when I was, you know, in the, in the eighties and nineties, women comedians were really starting to come into their own and they were getting up there and they were talking about being a woman. They were talking about the experience of being a woman in a way that men certainly couldn't, male comedians couldn't see, couldn't do that. And they were bringing that perspective to the world. And I think that was very important in the, the fight for uh, women's recognition as, as co-equals. Yeah. I think one of the biggest differences though, very honestly, is you, you didn't have the, uh, the instant communication society that we have today. And True. there was a certain amount of, you know, you had Lenny Bruski get up there and say a bunch of things. How many people would really hit it? It would really hear it. It might make, it might make page 16 of the, of the, the daily news of the New York post. And, and then it's on to something else, but now everybody just blows things out of proportion because it, it gets out into the, into the social media so fast. Well, I think that's right. I think your point about the fact that everybody hears things at the same time, somebody's going to raise their hand somewhere and say, I'm taking offense. You know, yeah. that don't, you yeah. can't say that. Don't say that to me. And I, I just hope that comedians persevere and say, look, we have a voice here. We have things to say. And uh, we have a perspective that's worth listening to. Because if you, shut, if you shut that down constantly, then what do you have? I mean, you really want it to, to just be the, you know, be social media where people are screaming at each other <laughs> back and forth in that kind of environment with a lot of vitriol? I, I, you know, I don't know. I like comedy myself. No, it's like George Carlin, right? I mean, he was so one of a kind. I mean, it's, it was social commentary in a humorous way, but it was packed full of common sense. And you know, some people saw it as offensive, but he, he was able to get away with it. And you really don't see that anymore. Now, Art, quick question for you. What happened, you know, at the end of Comedy Central, right? It was, it was not an amicable split. It was tough for you. How long did it take you to dust yourself off and land you at that amazing spot over at Court TV? Two years. Um, it was two years, but during that two years, I, I, uh, as I was dusting myself off, I was doing some consulting. And that was because I had a lot of friends who, in the business who looked out for me. One of them was the head of sales, uh, a guy named Larry Divney at Comedy Central. And he, as soon as I got fired, he called somebody over at A&E. He says, this Art Bell just got fired. You got anything for him? And they said, yeah, send him over. And they hired me. You know, they gave me a consulting job. Like literally that, it wasn't the day of, but you know, very quickly. And that was important because First of all, it made me feel good that somebody was uh, looking out for me a little bit and cared, but also, you know, for to get back on the, on the horse right away. Now you got to remember that was the first time I get, and I guess the only time I got fired, and I didn't understand what getting fired was. I thought people who got fired had done something horribly wrong, or screwed up, or done a bad job, or whatever, you know, but. I kept saying, why would anyone fire me? I like, I'm hardworking, you know, I got good ideas. I'm a pretty good manager. You know, I'm like, why would somebody fire me? Boom, I'm fired. So that gave me a whole new perspective on being fired, that often people who are fired are fired for reasons that have nothing to do with their performance, which was my case. I, I took it very hard, I have to say, for for the two years, you know, for the two years I was not fully employed. I mean, I was working full-time essentially as a consultant. I worked for A&E. I worked for Children's Television Workshop. I worked for um, 
WNET, Channel 13 in New York. You know, I got a lot of great experience running around from one television place to another, really giving my insight on how television channels might be better run and better managed. And it really, it was kind of like finishing school for me. I mean, I learned, certainly learned a lot about television in my jobs at Comedy Central, but telling other people how to do things, you know, to, to working with top management sometimes on the best way to manage or strategic planning and everything else. That really set me up for that job at Court TV. So, it, you know, when I went to Court TV, I really felt like I was walking in as a senior executive, as opposed to when I started with Comedy Channel, when I was, you know, a punk kid who didn't, you know, as, as Stu Smiley said, didn't know anything about comedy and had to, had to learn on the job. So, or what was, what was going through your head when somebody said, hey, do you want to go work for Court TV. I mean, talk about the difference between comedy and, and court, even though some, some, some court sessions are pretty funny, but what was going through your head about that shift? Cause that is, that is big. Well, you know, one of the things I like about myself is that I can get totally fascinated by whatever I'm doing. And that's been true through the years. I've had lots of different jobs and had, I've had to get fascinated with lots of different things. Court TV at the time was all courtroom trials. And it was really run as a news network. And what I knew about news was probably as much as I knew about comedy when I walked into comedy. So for me, it looked like a bit of a challenge. Also, the, the, the channel was failing when I got there. And they, 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 the, the, chair, the people who owned it was NBC and Cablevision and uh, Liberty Media. The, they didn't really expect it was going to survive. But they said, okay, one more chance. We'll put in some new management. We'll fire the old management. That was a guy named Steve Brill started Court TV, uh, and he was a lawyer and a journalist, but not a television guy. So what happened is it was all courtroom all the time, including at night when they just re-ran the daytime courtroom. And guess what? That's where you make your money in television, primetime. That's why they call it primetime, because that's where the audience is. And they couldn't compete with the primetime of other cable channels or other, other networks, and they were getting no audience and no advertisers. Uh, and that's no way to run a channel. So I think I think the idea, as I walked around before I was hired, you know, and started thinking about what I would do there if I was if I were hired, I said, "Man, this is nothing but opportunity. I know what to do with this place. I know how to make this work." So for me, it was just like a great challenge. And as I said, I was a little more confident because of my uh, my experiences. Was the leadership any different in Court TV versus Comedy Central? Well, to a certain extent, I was the leadership um, for a lot of the time. That's and right. You ran the place, but the people surrounding you. The people there were terrific. I, I got to say, you know, listen, I walked into the newsroom on the first day and, and it was a newsroom, you know, just like, just like in the movies with lots of little cubicles and all these rabid journalists. I mean, these are guys who are going to crawl over a glass to get the story. Some of them from the times from some of them from, you know, great backgrounds. And they looked up at me and said, Hey, here's a new guy. He's from Comedy Central. What the heck is he going to tell us? He knows nothing about journalism. He probably doesn't care. He's probably just going to mess up the channel completely. That's what they thought. That's what they thought. I had to kind of win them over. And I think uh, what we ended up doing was we ended up becoming, instead of a channel about courtroom, we became a channel about crime and justice. And that was very interesting because then you could do procedurals, which is what we did. We put... We put um, basically true crime documentaries on in primetime of all, all different kinds. 
And we got famous for it to the point where we were one of the top 10 or 15 rated channels within a couple of years. I mean, we turned that thing around real fast and we grew from 28 million homes subscribers to 80 million by the time I left, which was eight years later. My career falls into eight-year segments. You'll have to know that about me. But anyway, um, yeah, it was it was a great challenge. I loved doing it. I loved working with the people I work with there. And I don't regret a second of it. I, the, the only thing was, you know, the new guys came in. Turner came in and bought it for a lot of money. They bought it for a lot of money, of which I got none, by the way. But they bought it for a lot of money, and then they changed it to something else. So guess what? I got sent packing again. They didn't actually fire me, but you know, essentially they were going to change everything. So I left and I thought, okay, I've had a channel pulled out from under me twice now in my career. <laughs> Am I going to do this again? Cause instantly, you know, other channels started calling and say, Hey, you want to work here? Want to work there? But I didn't do that. Yeah. Build us a hit and a success and we'll get rid yeah. of you afterwards. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. You know what? Again, no regrets, no complaints. It, it's been, it's been a terrific, career and a terrific run. And I had so much fun. Um, and one of the, I, I will say one of the advantages of writing a book about it now, looking back on things, I heard from so many people I work with, or I knew in the, you know, back in the day. And it was, that was a, that was unexpected. And it was a great part of the whole experience. That, that is, is awesome. That is pretty cool. So what did you do after court TV? Well, which way did your life go? Yeah. I, you know, as I said, I turned down a couple of things and I decided to do some consulting. A couple of friends of mine were coming out of the NFL. They'd been with the NFL for ah, 15 years and they were coming out of the NFL. One was a lawyer and one was, you know, basically a general manager. And they said, Hey, let's set up a consulting firm. We can get some sports stuff and you can get some other stuff and we can do some consulting for the media business. And that's what I did for a long time. And I worked with very interesting clients. One of my most interesting projects was 3D television. We worked very hard to get 3D television accepted in America on behalf of Panasonic. We were hired by Panasonic to, um, you know, to program a channel, to get a channel going for 3D television and make it successful so that they could sell televisions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we weren't successful, <laughs> as you no. probably know, since you're not watching 3D television these days. That's not because it was a bad idea. I think it was a good idea. I think there were, it had a lot of things going against it. And uh, I did find out that producers love and directors love 3D. For them, it was another another storytelling tool. But the audiences, you know what? The audiences didn't really kind of get it. So that was the end of that. It's kind of like Smell-O-Vision. Well, <laughs> you know, it is kind of like Smell-O-Vision. And I'll tell you why Smell-O-Vision doesn't work. Because the most important thing to realism is audio. You want to make things more real, make the audio better, which amazed me. But I learned that. That's, that That's is true. Yeah, you go to the movies. My God, this sounds unbelievable. So well, really they have to do that. And you know who found that out? It was interesting. The guys who found that out were the the army was doing simulation, tank simulations, right? And so they kept beefing up the video, you know, like right through three D video and the whole thing. And it didn't really make much of a difference. But then they then they upped the sound quality. Suddenly, the whole thing was more realistic to everybody. So that was the big lesson there. That's awesome. So you wrote this book, and I love it. John and I both love it. It's a memoir. Tell us a little bit about the book, You know what drove you to write it, and uh, maybe the process. Well, really, the process became bef came before anything else. I left the business. I stopped doing consulting, and I said, okay, I always wanted to write. I better go learn how to write. So I went to um, a writing school, essentially, Sarah Lawrence Writing Institute, which is associated with the college. 
And I learned how to write. I took courses in memoir, classes in memoir, and they, they made a writer out. I mean, I wrote 150,000 words before I wrote anything about comedy central. And that's what happened. I was writing all the stuff about my childhood. And then one day I went into one of these classes and I said, Hey, I wrote something on, on this, uh, something I did at work. And I wrote a story about comedy central and they went, wow, that's cool. I, we didn't know you did that. Uh, and I said, <laughs> oh, you like that. I just wrote 150,000 words on my childhood and you didn't even look up. Suddenly I'm a hero to you. Um, but then I started writing some more stuff and more stories about, about comedy. And I, I realized that I had an amazing capacity to remember things. And that's what memoir is. It's not history. It's not biography or even autobiography. It's what you remember. I did very little research. I checked dates mostly, but I didn't do any research. It was all based on my memory. And so I, I put all these stories together and I said, geez, I got a book here. You know, this is, this could be a book. And I did some work on it, put a through line, you know, a plot in. And the plot was basically me having the perseverance to get this thing done and then ultimately leaving. That was the story. And there were heroes and there were villains and there were, you know, there were obstacles in the way. I mean, it's a classic storytelling device, way to, way to write, way to tell a story. And then I got an editor and I didn't know how that was going to work. And she said, she really liked it. She said, this is really good. And then she gave me 20 pages of notes on the first day. <laughs> so that was that process. You know, she was saying, hey, you know, you mentioned this person. You don't mention this person at all. And then suddenly you're married. Who is this? And I said, yeah, well, I met her while I was at comedy. And then we got married. She said, well, you can't just explode her on the scene after you're married. You got to talk about it. So that was the kind of, that was the kind of um, advice I was getting from her. And it ended up, you know, she did a fabulous job editing. And uh, then the book got published. And I, uh, you know, I'm really proud of it. As I said, I think it's, I think it, it really is personal. It really does talk about my successes, but also my insecurities along the way. And you talk about getting, getting up and dusting yourself off. I had to do that plenty during that period. You know, I was taking a lot of hits. Uh, and, and as I said, trying to keep that thing alive the first couple of years was very difficult. But I did it and I felt good about it. So it's all represented and, and detailed in this, in this book. And it's, there's a lot of comedy in it. It's very funny because, you know, if you're writing about comedy, you better make some of it funny. I love it. That's great. No. And who, by the way, speaking of comedy, who is your favorite comedian of all time? I'd love to know that. Well, I saw Richard Pryor for the first time when I was, I must have been eight or 10 years old. I don't even remember. On the Ed Sullivan show. Eight or which, 10. Wow. Your parents. Yeah, no, no. Liberal, you huh? you got to know this about me. I, I loved comedy from the time I could see practically. I mean, I was watching comedy on television when I was six or seven years old. I loved the comics on the Ed Sullivan show. And then I listened to my parents' albums and I got my own albums. I mean, you know, by the time I was 14, I was a comedy expert, which is really didn't do much for <laughs> my social life <laughs> at the time, but you know, it was fun. And I stuck with comedy the whole time. I wrote some comedy. I, I was never a big performer, but I did a lot of comedy writing. And I started to say, I saw Richard Pryor when I was, you know, eight or nine years old and on his first appearance. And I thought this guy is the funniest guy I've ever seen in my life. And it turned out he was. Oh, that's great. Terrific, that's great. Brilliant, brilliant comedian. Who was the biggest pain in the rear end to work with? Well, as I detail in my book, I did have a fight with Bill Maher 
Oh, that's not surprising to me. Yeah, Bill, he, he's kind of a hard guy to get along with sometimes. And uh, I'll tell you the short story. He It was about six months into a show. And as I said, it, it got off to a rocky start. But then it started getting some footing. And at that time, I was doing marketing as well. And so I did a marketing campaign with a, a new ad advertising company agency, rather, that we got, Corey Kay and Partners. And, and we did a campaign for Bill's show. And I showed it to the programming guys and I showed it to Bill's producer, but I didn't show it to Bill. Ask me why I didn't show it to Bill. Why didn't you show it to Bill? Because he would have killed the campaign, right? <laughs> of course. He would have said, this is terrible. You can't do this. This is horrible. So I showed it to everybody else. We ran the campaign. Bill calls up and he says, you can't do that. That's the worst campaign I ever saw. He says, you're not doing your job very well. And if I weren't doing my job, my job very well, you'd fire me, right? I am trying to get you fired. And I said, what? He said, I am trying to get you fired. Mm. And he hung up. Nice and he tried to get me fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's an ironic twist. I don't know if you want me to tell it. See, if I tell you all the good stuff in the book, that was you know, then you're not going to want to read it, right? This will be the only story we tell from the book. This will be the only one. <laughs> okay, here's the twist. So I didn't get fired. And about a month, not a month, two months later, I get a call from the agency, president of the agency says, guess what? We were nominated for an award for that campaign. I said, for the Bill Maher campaign? He said, yeah, we were nominated for a very big advertising award. I said, that's great. He said, yeah, come to the dinner with me. You know, it'll be fabulous. So we, we go to the dinner and on the way to the dinner, he says, hey, guess what? Guess who's the moderator? Guess who the host is for this dinner? No. Bill Maher. <laughs> I could not Jeez. believe it. And then it gets better. They they say, okay, for you know, best outdoor campaign, you know, and they say, you know, for for Comedy Central, for Bill Maher's campaign, you know, and they run the they on the on the screen behind them, they flash the campaign. And Bill Maher's at the mic. He's a, he's announcing this. He looks back, he goes, Man, that was a great marketing campaign. And everybody laughs because it's his face, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh on the campaign. And we won. And we won. We won the award, and Bill walked out, didn't say anything to me, just walked by us. Wow. Crazy, right? Who yep. you know, you couldn't make that up. That's why that's why it's fun to write memoirs sometimes because things happen to you that, you know, if if you said, look, this is fiction, people would say, that'd never happen. But this happened. He couldn't tell you that you were right, huh? He couldn't say, Hey, all right, congrats, man. Nope. But the thing is, um, He's a brilliant, brilliant performer. And sometimes brilliant, brilliant performers. I always say this. Performers are the guys who get on stage. They're the guys who are out there. It's their face. It's their reputation. You know, you may have 50 writers behind them, but at the end of the day, they, they're the ones who have to deliver. So when they want blue M&Ms in their, in their dressing room, you say, okay, we'll get you some blue M&Ms. I mean, you have to, you really have to understand that it's hard and performers are sometimes cranky. I'll tell you. That's what, what John does with me. He has to rein me in kind of like you do tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Art has yeah. been awesome. Anything you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Well, I will say, you know, if you're more interested in hearing, uh, you know, and learning about me, and I'm no, I know the audience is going, how did I not come across Art Bell my whole life? I got to find out about this guy. You can go to my website, which is artbellwriter.com, where I have an interview with myself and I do some, and some of my other writing is on there and some stuff about my book. Or you can buy my book and learn everything about me. And uh, the book's available at Amazon. Again, it's called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And I hope you do. 
No, absolutely. I'm sure they are. We are. And John is a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. And we really thank you for taking the time to join us. It's been amazing. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It's been really fun. Yeah, no, this is this is great, Art. I really appreciate your sharing stories with us. And, and I agree with you. I think we do... Um, we do need comedy in our life. I mean, the, this this world, quite frankly, has gotten a little bit too serious and um, a little too full of itself, and we need people to start poking fun at it. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Appreciate it. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line.